Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 9, our sermon text is a relatively short one. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. And this is our custom. Out of respect for the word of God, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the scriptures this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, that, that not, a, not a single stroke of a pen from your word will fail to come to pass until, until uh, it, it just never will. Your word never fails. And we thank you that we know that we, uh, we live not by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we pray that you might even now teach us by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Rob, in his uh, prayer a little while ago, just said something about just getting right to it. And, and uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing uh, the things in our text. It's a rather short, brief text. But there's a, a number of things that I think we can learn and should learn from it. There's a lot that we can learn, like the apostles themselves needed to learn about uh, humility, about unity, about the kind of people God uses, about the kind of service that God values, that, that our Lord Jesus Christ values. And so I want to look at what you might consider three uh, relatively brief, brief lessons or things for us to learn from our text. Um, we find here in, in these short verses that John, what does John do? John is informing Christ that he and the other disciples had seen someone casting out demons. You know, in, in Jesus' name, no less. And what was their response to it? The, the ESV says that they, they uh, tried to stop him. It really, it really just says stop them. They, they forbid them from doing it, whoever this was. They went up and we don't know if the person kept doing it, even though the apostles objected. But they, they, they did their best to put a stop, to put a stop doing to it. To it. And why, why did they do that? What, was, what did they tell Jesus the reason was that they told uh, this person to stop. He says, because he was not following us. Verse, verse 38. Notice that John doesn't say they stopped the man because he wasn't following Jesus. They stopped the man because he wasn't following, literally wasn't following them, the disciples. So in other words, what's he saying? He wasn't one of us. He's not in the group. He's not in the, you know. Remember at some point earlier in the gospel, Jesus had sent the disciples, the 12, out to, to preach the gospel, to heal, and to cast out demons. So what they're saying is, hey, this, that's our job. You know, you sent us to do that. You didn't send, these guys haven't been with us, weren't sent by you with us to do this work. And so we, we stopped them. We forbade them uh, from doing what they thought Jesus had only commissioned them to do. They're encroaching on their, their turf, uh, this person was. And what, what was Jesus' response to that? What do you think that the disciples expected Jesus to say? 
They, they probably thought he was going to say, good job, guys. Thanks for stopping them. Boy, that was a close one. You know, we can't have untrained, unwashed uh, folks doing the work that only you great guys who, uh, uh, who were just recently in the text arguing with each other about who the greatest was of among them. You know, we don't want to, you know, 12's enough. It's hard enough to divvy up the glory between 12, much less some other guy that wasn't with, wasn't with them. But no, Jesus says the exact opposite, probably, of what they thought he was going to say. Verse 39, he says, do not stop him. You know, mind your own business. You know, don't, don't stop him. And why, why not? Why did Jesus tell them not to stop this person or any such person like him? Because Jesus says, quote, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us. And Jesus is kind enough to say us and not just me. The one who is not against us is for us. Now, the fact that Jesus was doing this, this uh, casting out of demons in Jesus' name in particular shows that in some way he really was following Christ. You know, there are, there are others in the scriptures in the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular, who tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name uh, and, and, and failed to do so. In the New Testament, we see that, but that's not the case here. This wasn't somebody using Jesus' name as some kind of a, a, a magic phrase or something and, and hoping uh, and crossing his fingers that it was going to work. This person actually was following Christ. We don't know how long he had, had been hearing him teach, and he actually had cast out uh, demons. And it's, it's, it's got to be a little ironic that if, if you're familiar with the text and the verses just prior to this, what did we see the disciples trying to do and failing to do? Casting out demons. Remember the boy, the, fa- the, fa- the, boy, the, fa- the boy's father came to Jesus and said, Hey, I, I brought my son to your disciples. This demon was casting him to the ground, throwing him in the water and into the fire, trying to kill him. And your disciples couldn't do anything. This, that's probably still ringing in their ears when this happened. We don't know how, how, much soon, how much soon afterward this had happened, but it surely shouldn't escape our notice that, that uh, they had just failed to do something. And here's this guy they don't even know casting out Casting out demons in Jesus' name. Well, that, it brings to mind the account of, of Moses from Numbers chapter 11. You might be familiar with the text, Numbers 11, verses 24 to 29. It says this, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. That was his job as, as the prophet, right? And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent, the tent of, of meeting. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Continues, now the two, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Very similar circumstance. What, is, what, is, what does it say in Numbers about Joshua? 
It says he was the assistant of Moses from his youth. I'm your main guy. I'm your I'm the one that's been serving you all this time is what he's kind of saying. They're not doing it right. They were supposed to come out to the tent of meeting like everybody else did, like I did. And here they are. They stayed back at the camp and they're prophesying back at the camp. Moses, you got to do something. Same same kind of uh, situation. And Moses, his words are, are exemplary and something we should uh, seek to emulate. He's, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were... Moses wasn't... This wasn't a gig to Moses. Moses wasn't saying, hey, this is my thing. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who gets all the acclaim. If the Lord's word was going to be spoken, he was happy about it. He wishes everybody was speaking God's God's word. Now, no less than Joshua himself wanted to put a stop to that, didn't he? Joshua was no no common, common man, but Moses said what he said there. Now, may our zeal for, for things, may our zeal be for Christ himself, first and foremost. For his glory and not our own, or that of our own party, our own denomination for that matter. May you and I be of the mindset of Moses, uh, in that even like Paul in the New Testament, that if Christ be preached... We rejoice as long as he's preached truly. We don't see it as, as a competition. It's one thing to be a part of a particular church and a part of a denomination, but it's another thing entirely to be of a party spirit and to have a divisive mindset. Not only that, but it's one thing to have a high view of, the, of, of office in the church, which I believe we should have, to hold in high esteem the offices God has appointed for the, for the good of the church, and the spread of his gospel is the offices of deacon and elder and the men who occupy those offices and serve the well-being of the body of Christ according to the Lord's will and for his glory. Uh, we should hold them in high esteem. I'm grateful to hold office in the church, the office of, of pastor. I hold that in, in high regard and am grateful and humble for that. Uh, we should be grateful for the offices of ruling elder and deacon. I know I am because many hands make light work. I, I pity the pastor who thinks of the church as, as a one-man show. There's too much work to do for one man, even for an elder and deacon board alongside his hands to, to do it. There's much work to do, and the work never seems to be done. But the work that needs to be done is more than even elders and deacons can do by themselves. God has not put those officers in the church to do all the work of ministry, has he? Not, not by a long shot. We must be a church, and any church should, should be one that encourages an every member ministry. Every believer is not called to church office. That's probably not a newsflash. Uh, frankly, most Christians are not called to office in the church. Most are not. Uh, frankly, that's, that's the case. But every believer, every single one, we just had Pentecost Sunday last, last week. Every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit Himself for ministering in some way in Christ's church. Every single one. If you're a believer, that means you. doesn't matter how young you are. doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit has uh, given you a gift from Christ to serve in some way in, in the church. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 to 11, it says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through 
Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. God is glorified. Christ is glorified when we serve in whatever way God has gifted you to do so. So let us, as, as a church, let us not seek only what we can get out of, of the church. Even what we can get out of worship. Now, I hope you get something out of worship every Sunday. I hope you get something out of, of even of serving. But let's seek what we may give, what we may contribute, how we may serve one another in the church. And we just heard something similar to this earlier in, in the chapter when Jesus told the disciples in verse 35, if anyone would be what? First, he must be last of all and servant of all. You know, it's that, old, that old John F. Kennedy quote, you know, ask not, I won't say his, his uh, you know, ask not what your country can do for you. In, in a similar sense, you know, ask what you can do for the Lord and his church. That's what we should be thinking. Not only that, but as a church, you and I have to refuse to see ourselves as being somehow in competition with other evangelical Bible-believing churches. I think that's one of the worst Scandals uh, in the life uh, of, the, of the church, and probably always has been. You know, there, you have to think. There's n- there's no shortage of sinners in our town, is there? There's no shortage of people who don't know the Lord in any town. If a town had a church like they used to have when I grew up, a church on every corner, you still would not run out of people who don't know the Lord and need to hear the gospel. As the saying goes, you know, they say a rising tide does what? Lifts all boats. We're, we're pulling on the same side of the rope, or we should be. We're on the, same, on the same team. So we should be praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the harvest field because the harvest is plentiful, not, not small, as Jesus says. We should pray that the Lord would fill our church and draw sinners to himself through the preaching of the gospel. But let us pray the same for our fellow churches in town who believe and preach the word of God in sincerity and truth that there's a body of sincere believers in Christ in this town or anyone else that's filled with people with whom you and I will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ that if they succeed we succeed if they succeed we should rejoice for their only true success and glory which is not measured by budgets and buildings is Christ's success and glory JC Ryle Uh, writes this. He says, we may think our fellow Christians mistaken in some points. And I admit that I I do think that at times. Uh, We may fancy that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if all worked in the same way. We may see many evils arising from religious dimensions and divisions, but all this must not prevent us rejoicing if the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved. If is our neighbor warring against Satan? Is he really trying to labor for Christ? This is the grand question. Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. Amen. Well, the next thing I think our text would teach us is is to to not, not despise little things. To not despise little things. You know, it's notice in our text it's not just the big things. It's not just what Jesus calls the mighty work the mighty works such as casting out demons that Jesus commends and rewards. And that's, that's what the man was doing, right? He's casting out demons in Jesus. That's a pretty big thing. Not everybody, apparently, even the disciples could always do it. Uh, and yet he was doing such a, a mighty work. Jesus says, you know, no one who does such a mighty work in my name can soon afterwards speak, you know, speak evil of me. 
kind of thing. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there at all. Look at verse 41. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's a pretty big spectrum of service. Mighty works, casting out demons, the big impressive stuff, the flashy stuff, and then giving somebody a cup of cold water because they belong to Christ. Because they are literally of Christ, is what, is what he said. A cup of water for the sake of Christ is an act noticed by the Lord himself and one that will be rewarded, he says, by him as well. Think about that. Now, we live in an age, uh, especially with, with social media, as some of you know, uh, we live in an age of self-promotion where many do charitable things only if a camera is rolling. Uh, everything seems to be a photo op in our day. Uh, everything is an opportunity for publicity. Uh, we serve to be seen. That There's a word for that. That's Phariseeism. That's the religion of the Pharisees. If you only do it when people are watching, there's something wrong. Jesus actually condemns that kind of thing, doesn't he, in very strict Stern words. It's a self-centered, hypocritical ministry. Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4, uh, Jesus Christ says this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What reward did the Pharisees have? They had exactly what they were aiming for, to be seen. They were looking to, be, uh, to have others be impressed by them. And that's, that's as far as their reward would ever go because that's all they really were looking for. They weren't serving Christ. They weren't serving God at all. What does he say? Serve in a, in a way that doesn't make it known to others, and your Father who sees in secret, verse 4, will reward you. It's an act of faith. When nobody's looking, it's a lot harder to, to, do, to do a good deed. But it's not that much harder to do a good deed when you know that the Lord himself is actually watching and taking notice. Even a cup of cold water for someone to drink, to be practicing righteousness, Jesus says, and, uh, before other people to be seen by them, is to do so for your own benefit and for your own glory, not for Christ and his glory. Such works, whether mighty as casting out a demon or minuscule in the world's eyes, giving a cup of cold water, will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven if it's done in that way. But you and I should be assured that real ministry that's pleasing to Jesus Christ and which he is even pleased to reward isn't just the big things. It's even the little things, that cup of water, small acts of kindness, cups of water, a meal uh, given to the servants of Christ's gospel and towards the least of these. That's what Christ values. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6, 9 to 10, he says, Do not... Uh, let us not grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We don't restrict our good deeds to the, to the church walls. 
We don't, we don't, we don't restrict our good deeds, our, our acts of charity and kindness and help to those who are on the church roll. It should be especially to them, to, to, to each other, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be sure. But we should be trying to do good to everyone, to someone, especially each other. And do it in the name of Christ and keep on doing it. Why? For in due time, the Lord Christ will bless your efforts and no doubt bless you for those efforts as well. And that leads us to our third, our third point, and that is good works and rewards. That is, I believe that is one of the most, I know I sound like a broken record lately, but I think that's one of the, one of the most neglected things in all of Scripture in our day. The topic of, of God's rewarding his people for our works of obedience and good deeds. That's, that's one of those subjects that, that seems to really have fallen on hard times uh, again in our day. Now, for some reason, I think this topic makes people nervous. I think this topic of, of good works and rewards makes a lot of believers, sincere believers, a little bit nervous. Maybe it's because we, have, we sometimes have a difficult time distinguishing in our minds between God rewarding the good works of believers and somehow uh, thinking of it in terms of, of Christianity becoming a works-based religion. And for sure we have to be careful how we articulate and explain and understand these things, but we do have to be careful that we don't throw out things that, that Christ has said in, in the word of God for our benefit and for our good and for his glory because we're nervous how it might be mistaken or misunderstood. We just have to do a better job of, of studying these things and explaining them. The Westminster Divines taught very clearly on the subject of heavenly rewards, which shows us that this was not always a doubtful topic in, in the church. Our confession of faith includes an entire chapter on the subject of good works, chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Imagine, imagine that today. Imagine a church putting together their doctrinal statement. I'm guessing good luck finding one that has anything at all about good works specifically. That, that alone might be enough to make many Christians uncomfortable in our day. Must be some kind of works-based religion, those Presbyterians. Uh, in, in, that, in that chapter we read not only that good works, quote, done in obedience to God's commands, that they are the fruit and evidences of a true and lively or living, not dead, faith. So good works are the evidence of a true and living faith. We also read there that despite the fact that you and I, our best works have sin attached to them. The best works you and I ever do in this life are not wholly unblameable. They're not wholly perfect or, or pure. But despite that fact, uh, that, that God sees the, the defects in our good works in Christ, but it says in our confession that in that chapter that nevertheless God, quote, looking upon them, upon our good works, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Think about that. God's not dumb. God's not blind. He sees all the problems, all the, the sin, the selfishness and things that are kind of woven through the best of our works. And yet he looks upon them, doesn't just look upon you and his son. He even looks upon your good works in his son. And it says, it is pleased to accept and even reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That's good news. God is pleased to reward our good works, even though they're not really all that good sometimes. 
because he looks upon them just as he looks upon you in Christ. God forgives in Christ. He forgives all of our sins. He accepts you. He accepts your persons. Through Christ alone, that's justification by faith. But he's also pleased to accept your good works by looking upon them in his son as well. Titus chapter 2 verse 14, Paul says this, that Christ Jesus, quote, gave himself for us. He's talking about his death. Gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So that, you know, redeem us from our, our lives of, of sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then he adds, who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't just die to save you from your old ways of sin, although he did do that. He also saved you for a positive purpose, that we might walk in newness of life and be zealous for good works. If that doesn't make you zealous for good works, I don't know what will encourage you to do that. Well, not only that, but our confession has a chapter uh, that makes people really nervous, the chapter on the law of God, chapter 19 of our confession of faith. I hope if you have never read it, that you will grab a copy on your way out and read that this afternoon or read it sometime soon. If you've already read it, reread it and see what it has to say. I think there's a lot of helpful things that uh, would be beneficial to the church in our antinomian age. But this is what it says. This is a long quote. I apologize for that, but I don't want to skip part of it and leave the context out. It's, it's uh, Confession of Faith 19.6. It says, Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be, to be thereby, thereby justified or condemned. We are not under the law as, as, its, as its curse hanging over us anymore if we're in Christ. Yet it is of great use to them. You know the law is of great use to you as a Christian, as a believer. It is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering or showing also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin. The law shows us our sin. It's, Paul says, by the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. In other words, the law shows, shows you your sin. It reminds you, even as a Christian, of how much you need Christ. That on your own, we have no righteousness to speak of with which to stand before a holy God. But in Christ, we have perfect righteousness accounted to us by faith. And this is what it says after that. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, that's to the born again, to restrain their corruptions. The law restrains our corruptions by the Spirit's work in that it forbids sin, and here it is, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even our sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof, threatened in the law. So as believers, we're freed from the curse of the law, but the law, God's commandments, shows us what afflictions, what discipline in this life we can expect for breaking his law and living in a way that's contrary to it. And then he adds this, the writers add this, the promises of it, the promises of the law, the promises of it in like manner, just like the, the other part, show them God's approbation or approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance of them, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as 
a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. That last phrase basically means there's nothing unspiritual about obeying God's commandments because they are commanded. There's nothing unspiritual about, about obeying the prohibitions against sin because they're commanded. That's what you're supposed to do. That's why they're called commandments in the first place. There's nothing unspiritual about obeying God's commandments. But what does he say there? What do they say? The promises of the law in like manner show us God's approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. So here's a, here's a, a, a trivia question. Not trivia. Does God bless the obedience of his people, of his redeemed people? Yes. We should never be ashamed to affirm that or believe that or live and act upon that. That is not works righteousness. That is not trying to earn your salvation. That's not trying to earn God's approval. But God, God blesses obedience and he, and he disciplines disobedience. Sounds like a loving father, doesn't it? God gives believers, us believers, promises in his law, promises of blessing or reward for our obedience to his law. And based on God's promise, not upon our own presumption, we may, it says there, expect, that's a, that's a strong word, expect blessings from our Heavenly Father for obeying his law. Although not as something that he owes us. We don't do it and then go, where's my blessing? That's not how that works. It's not a covenant of, of works. We don't earn God's blessings by our obedience. Even then, it's a blessing and a reward, not something we earn. Our best works are blameworthy in some ways, but what, is, what do we have in Scripture? God has annexed promises of blessing even to his commandments. He's, he's added promises of blessing to his commandments as a, as a wise father does with his beloved children. And where do I get that from? I get that from the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment. We have some of our children here in, in the front row. What is the fifth commandment, kids? I won't put you on the spot, but it's this. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. And what does it say after that? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What's, what does the law say there? God put a promise attached to the fifth commandment, and why would God possibly do that? To encourage obedience. He's saying, honor your father and mother. You know, that could have been a very short commandment. You don't have that same promise of blessing, although I think it's implied, when he says in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. You would hope no one would need motivation to not murder. You know, God doesn't say, don't murder, and then I'll, you know. But the fifth commandment, he adds a promise of blessing, doesn't he? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you now. Children, what, what, what does your God promise you uh, by, that will be the, the, the result of you honoring your father and your mother? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, some in our day will object and say, you know, foul. That, that, that is somehow a promise only given to the children of Israel because what does it say? He speaks specifically of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, is about to give you. What's he talking about? What's Moses talking about? The promised land, Canaan. They weren't there yet. They were still traveling on their way. 
But is that, is that right? Do we, do we get rid of the Ten Commandments because, well, that's a Jewish thing. That's an Old Testament thing. What about the New Testament's use of the Ten Commandments? What does Paul say about that? Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, he quotes and applies the, no less than the Fifth Commandment. He says, children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. And then what does he say? To quote, honor your father and mother. What's he quoting? Exodus 20, verse 12. And he says, even here, listen, this is the New Testament, mind you. Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise. The first commandment with a promise. And, what, and he quotes the promise. He says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he adds, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger or to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul seem to think, seems to me, that the commandment and the promise annexed to it both still apply. And we should think the same way of his commandments. Now notice this, that this is an epistle, Ephesians is, to the church. And in that epistle, Paul gives a command to children. Think about that. Of all the things Paul could have dealt with in this, in this letter, he addresses children. That should grab our attention. This great apostle to the Gentiles and evangelist to them, he did not see himself as above teaching children. He didn't view them as unworthy of instruction along with the rest of the church. You know, when these letters from Paul and Peter and John were sent around to the churches, do you know what they did with them? They would read them to the whole church, probably during their worship service. They, they were self-consciously, as the New Testament tells us, aware in some way that this was scripture they were getting. New scripture, but scripture, the word of God, nonetheless. Now, the fact that Paul would put that in the letter assumes that Paul presupposed and would, would have expected this letter to be read there and that who was going to be in the service? Children. He doesn't say, fathers, tell your children to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He addresses the children in the letter directly. And that should tell us something about how our worship services should be. We should not shun the presence of children in our worship services. They certainly didn't in Paul's day. Paul would not have done such a thing. Well, what, is this, what does Paul base his command for children to obey their parents and the Lord on? How does he say that this is right? He bases that on the fifth commandment. He basically says... The Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother, and it still, it still applies. That alone should silence those in the church today who twist the scriptures and confuse, I think, the flock of Christ by saying that the law of God found in the Old Testament no longer applies to believers today. That is a common, common misconception. Nothing could be further than the truth. The Ten Commandments, the summary, what are they? They're, they're a summary of God's moral will for his people. They are a reflection. God's commandments are a reflection of his own perfections and holiness. Has God changed in any way? God does not change. He cannot change. And so his law is still a reflection of his perfections and holiness. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says again, this is the first commandment with a promise. And so what does Paul do? He quotes the commandment, including the promise annexed to it. Now, Paul's not saying to you in our day that you are to expect long life in the land of Canaan. 
That's not what he's saying. Notice he kind of cuts the quotation short. He interprets it by doing that. Long life in the land. What land? This land. Ramona. Wherever you happen to be living, he's saying that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That promise still applies. God still promises to reward and bless the obedience of his children, including children. So that commandment still applies and that promise of blessing still applies as well. God rewards by his grace your works of obedience, your good works done in his name, even giving a cup of water to drink to someone who's working in the gospel. So chastisement and discipline for sin and blessing and reward for the obedience of faith, those are evidences of God's fatherly love and care for his children in Christ. It means God is actually acting as your father. It's an act of his grace. So let you and I, let us not be ashamed to acknowledge that truth and to live in light of it to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a much better father to us than we even are to our children, that you tell us if, if you being evil uh, still good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will, you, will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We thank you that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift, that though you give us your law, your commandments, that it is not burdensome to your people to obey them. You tell us in your word that, that, that what it is to love God that loving God is to keep his commandments and his commandments, your commandments, are not burdensome. We thank you that they are not given to us to be a burden, that they reveal our sin to us, our need for Christ. Even those of us who are believers already, we see just how much we are dependent upon Christ to be right before you. And we also see that you, you approve of and bless and reward the obedience of your people in faith. And so we ask that you would you would work in our hearts by your spirit that you might make us, as, as that passage in Titus says, that you would make us a people who are zealous for good works and zealous for good works for your glory and that we might see the blessings that you might pour out upon your people and pour out upon even our nation and our land as well. Uh, give us grace to, to be uh, fruitful and faithful, to, to do good works, whether they be big or small, and help us do those good works with an eye to your glory trusting that no matter what our neighbors think, that you are pleased by such things and you are pleased to reward and bless them. And we do pray that if anybody here does not yet know you through faith in Christ, that you might make today the day of their salvation. Turn them from their sin and turn them to Christ by faith that they might have life and forgiveness, life abundant and eternal. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.